You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. We are, we're in a series about the impact of the Christian movement. We're looking at the difference that Jesus has brought about in our world and the impact that he's made. So far, we've looked at the impact Jesus has made on our modern understanding of healthcare. We see he's actually the source of why we understand healthcare to be what we do today. And then last week, we looked at the impact of Jesus on the inherent worth of women and of children. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to take a look at the difference Jesus has made on politics. So this should be fun. Uh, Let's jump right in. When you think about politics, think about political influencers throughout history. If some names start popping into your head, Jesus probably isn't one of those first names that pops into your head. Uh, you More likely, you think of someone, maybe like a conqueror. You think of Alexander the Great. You think of Napoleon. Or maybe more on the philosophical side. You think of a political thinker. You think of Plato. Or you think of Karl Marx, men who have had an undoubted impact on the history of politics. Many, though, many will argue that the most successful politician of all time is the man known to history as Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, Augustus, he checked all the boxes of a great political leader. And he actually entered the pages of history right on the heels of the assassination of Julius Caesar. He was Julius Caesar's adoptive nephew. And this took place at a time when Rome was in crisis. Rome was in crisis. It had gone through just seemingly endless civil war after civil war, and there seemed to be no end in sight. But Augustus, when he ascended to power through really brilliant statesmanship, what he did is he ushered in this 200-year period of history known as the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, this 200-year period of peace. Now, to be clear, this period of peace was a period of peace, not a period of freedom. The peace was achieved largely by consolidating the conquest of conquered people in the Mediterranean world. But if you were a Roman citizen, you weren't too concerned about the oppression of foreign people because you had peace, you had power, so you were content. In fact, such was the, such was the gratitude of the Roman people for this man, Augustus, that they gave him this title. They gave him the title Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus, which means roughly the invincible one, Caesar son of God. And if that wasn't enough, they also named a month after him. He got a month. That's where we get our month, August. August is named after Augustus. So by all measures, this was a man who made a massive impact on the history of politics. But 25 years or so into his reign, he had a very long reign, 40 some odd years, about 25 years into that, something happened that would have an even bigger mark on the governments of the world. And it happened in really an obscure corner of the Roman Empire. It happened among one of those conquered people. And we can read about it in Luke chapter 2. So let's do that. Let's read Luke 2, 1 through 5. In those days, Caesar Augustus, that's our guy, he issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, Because he belonged to the house and the line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And this child, of course, was Jesus. And as Jesus grew up in this backwoods corner of the Roman Empire, he began to say things that people had never heard before. And he began to do things that people had never seen before. Specifically, he began to perform miracles and signs 
that people had never seen anything like that before. And when people witnessed the power that Jesus had, their minds immediately went exactly to probably the same place where, where our minds would go. They thought political power. They saw power and they thought political power, which is, I think, what we would think as well. And that's not a bad thing. They wanted freedom from oppression. That's not a bad thing at all. They wanted freedom from oppression of Rome. But time and again, Jesus, he resisted calls to ascend to political power. We read about one example in John chapter 6, where it says, people had seen a sign. It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, though, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew to a mountain again by himself. So Jesus always resisted calls for political power, for military power. And the reason is that he was actually on a mission for something much bigger than either of those things. He was on a mission to free us from our sins. He was on a mission to restore our broken relationship to God. And compared to this, freedom of oppression is important, but compared to this, freedom from oppression was a far lesser mission, and Jesus knew that. The irony is, though, that despite Jesus's constant refusal to assert this political power, no one in history has had a greater influence on the governments of the world. His impact's so great that the governments of the world, we still organize our calendars around him. We have BC, before Christ, and AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So Augustus, he might have a month named after him, but the whole calendar revolves around Christ. So calendar aside, What's the specific influence that Jesus has had on politics? Jesus, he's shaped our politics by shaping our ideas of freedom. Jesus has shaped our politics by shaping our ideas of freedom. And when we speak of freedom, it's helpful to understand that we say one word freedom, but there's actually really three things that we mean by that. We say freedom, but there are three kind of separate ideas built into that that we just kind of lump into one. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna separate out each of those types of freedom, and we're going to see how Jesus is actually the one who provided the necessary foundation for each of those. So the first freedom is individual freedom. Individual freedom. This is the first blank there in your outline. And this is usually the first thing that comes to mind when we think about freedom in general. It's, uh, it's our freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion. So if you're thinking Bill of Rights stuff, then, then we're on the same page and, and we're on the right track. And we can usually take these rights for granted. The reason is that they're just part of the normal context that we live in. Like a fish in water who doesn't notice the water because he's always in the water. We're always, we've been born, raised, most of us, in this context. As a kid, I recall one time I was playing with a friend. I was maybe 10 years old. And we got into some little tift. And he was annoying me. I told him to stop talking to me and go away. And you know what he said to me? He said, it's a free country. You can't make me. <laughs> what? I had never heard that before. My friend was no legal scholar, but neither was I. I was just, I was stumped. I had no comeback. It was a checkmate statement. I thought, he's right. What can I do? From my earliest memories, these rights, they've just kind of been a part of my world. And probably the same is true for you. So it's easy to forget that they've only been enjoyed, these rights have only been enjoyed by a small percentage of human history. Why are these rights so rare? Why aren't they more common? Well, they're rare because there's a prerequisite idea that is necessary, absolutely necessary, for a society to establish individual rights. That prerequisite idea is simply that each person has value. 
each person has value. If a society doesn't believe that each person has value, or if they believe that some people have more value and other people have lesser value, then what will happen is the rights of those with greater value, well, they're going to outweigh the rights of those with lesser value or those with no value. And so the rare thing that's true of our society is that almost everybody agrees and believes that people have equal value, that all people have equal value. Sure, there's, there's outliers, there's, there's folks on the fringes, but as a society, the vast majority of us, we believe that everybody has value, and that's not a normal thing. But have you ever wondered, where does this shared belief come from? We all believe this. Where does that come from? Well, it turns out it comes from the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible teaches that all people have value because God made them. Not only did he make them, he made them in his image. We're different than a tree or a fish or a duck. <laughs> they weren't made in God's image. We were made in God's image. We were made to be like him. This, this, first, this idea first shows up in Genesis, but it doesn't stop in Genesis. Jesus, he came to earth, and he actually began to live this out. He began to model it. When he came to earth, he treated people with dignity. And not just rich people, not just moral people, not just good-looking people, all people. He treated them with dignity. And then he took it a step further. He died for all people. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this idea of human value that we see from God modeled by Jesus, this is what formed a cultural backdrop that was absolutely necessary for establishing individual freedom in our country. Without it, it would have been impossible for a handful of men to come together in Philadelphia in 1776, delegated with this task of writing a document that would accurately represent the sentiment of an entire society and write these words, the, the words of the Declaration of Independence, which say, at the beginning, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self In other words, these, these ideas, these truths, they're so, they've so permeated our society that they're just obvious to everybody. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So these are powerful words. And often we're actually tempted to treat these words like they're God's words, aren't we? But they're not. They're not God's words. In fact, the words of the Declaration of Independence, they're actually dependent themselves on God's word for their very logic, for their reason. Alexis de Tocqueville, he was a Frenchman who traveled to the United States in the 1830s, and he made it his mission to understand democracy in America. That was his goal. And he described it this way. He said, it was necessary that Jesus Christ come to earth to make it understood that all members of the human species are naturally alike and equal. Elsewhere, he wrote this. He said, Christianity, which has rendered all men equal before God, will not be loath to see all citizens equal before the law. So in other words, he's saying, without a creator to give all people value, and without Jesus to teach us about that value, then what the founders wrote in the Declaration of Independence it's baseless nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It's dependent on the Word of God for its very reason. <clears throat> and Tocqueville, he was in a unique position to perceive this. 
He was in a unique position because he's able to draw from recent memory of the revolution that's taken place in his home country. And so we, we often, we refer to the founding of our country, our nation, as an experiment in freedom. But it's easy to forget that the French Revolution was really a competing hypothesis on the other side of the Atlantic. And unlike our nation, which was founded on unapologetically, an unapologetically biblical worldview, the French Revolution, this was an explicitly atheistic movement. So two very different hypotheses in these experiments. The French Revolution, it actually attempted to establish these rights of man, what it called the rights of man, and it attempted to do that completely independent of God. The leaders of the revolution, they even created this kind of quasi-religious, atheistic institution to replace the church. And they named it the Cult of Reason. Doesn't that sound lovely? The Cult of Reason. But they knew that without God to give value, rights were just arbitrary. Without God giving value to individuals, rights were just kind of a made-up idea. And so what they did is they deified the closest thing they could find to God. They deified human reason as a stand-in God. And as you know, the story didn't end well. The French Revolution, that experiment, led first to mob rule, and then it led to tyranny. So the God of human reason, it proved to be an inadequate, a thoroughly inadequate foundation for individual freedom. And why is that? Well, it's because rights depend on value, and it's because value comes from God, and that is the only basis for individual freedom. So that's individual freedom. Next we have political freedom. Political freedom, this is, this is freedom to participate, to have involvement in government. And so for us, this shows up in our freedom to select leaders, to pass laws, to run for office. And as with individual freedom, this is, this is a very rare thing. This is not common. The most common approach to government throughout the centuries has been to concentrate all power into a single individual, uh, some, sort, some form of monarch. You can think king, queen, you can think czar, kaiser, caesar, chief, emperor, pharaoh, different names, but all kind of the same idea that it's the concentration of all power or majority of power into an individual. And the Bible actually never condemns this form of government. It doesn't come out and say, that's bad, that's wrong. Never does that. In fact, Christians are actually commanded to pay taxes, even to fund governments of tyrants. Christians are commanded to obey laws, even laws that are set by tyrants. However, the Bible does give us very clear warnings about what to expect when a single individual is the one running the show. In the book of 1 Samuel, God's people, they came and they asked for a king. They asked God, they wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations around them, so they asked to have a king over them. And God said, okay, but here's what you can expect. We read about it in 1 Samuel 8, 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. He will take the male and your male and female servants. He will take the tenth of your flocks. And on top of that, you will be his slaves. So, you see the pattern here? We've got take, 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 take. And the problem, when we think about this, the problem, it's obvious. When you put all of your hope in a single individual, 
Your best case scenario is you end up with a benevolent dictatorship. There have been a number of those in history. Worst case scenario, more common, is you end up with oppressive tyranny. Now, I say that the problem is obvious, but the truth is, it's really, it's obvious to us. It's obvious to you and me. It's not been obvious to most people throughout history. And why is that? Is it because we're so much smarter? Hardly. What is it then? If we're not smarter, why is it that it's obvious to us? Well, it's obvious to us because of our view of human nature. That's the key difference. And this isn't a view that we came up with on our own. Our view of human nature, it's not something that we can take credit for. It's actually a view that our society has inherited from a biblical worldview. So what is the biblical view of human nature? The biblical view of human nature is that sin comes naturally. So when you think human nature and the Bible, you read through the Bible, what does it say about humans? You see this theme. Sin comes very naturally to all humans. We're not just oozing with goodness and altruism inside. Our bent, our default, is towards selfishness. Selfishness, it's our fallback position in life. So the Bible teaches this, and Jesus understood this. And John chapter 2, it records another instance where people, again, they saw the signs that Jesus did. They had big plans for him, and it records Jesus' response. It says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Why? For he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So Jesus could see the heart of people. He could see what was inside people. He knew about human nature. And knowing their hearts, he knew that the ambitions of man don't align. They're not the same. They don't match the ambitions of God. And then isn't it interesting what it says about that? It says because he knew their hearts, he would not entrust himself to them. He knew their hearts. He would not entrust himself to them. When you understand what's in the heart of people, it means that you really you think twice before placing yourself in their hands and just hoping for the best. You don't entrust yourself to people automatically. And when it comes to government, this doesn't mean that we should have no leaders. Instead, what it means is that we should try to strive to have accountable leaders. Accountable leaders. What does that look like? Accountable leaders are leaders who are not above the law. Uh, this idea was clearly articulated in 1644 by a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Samuel Rutherford. He wrote a book, the title of the book was Lex Rex, means the law is king. So Rutherford, from the pages of the Bible, he argued, and this was a novel argument at the time, he argued that even a king should be subject to the law. And on top of that, there should be mechanisms in place to hold him accountable. He should be subject to it, and he should be held accountable to the law. Unfortunately, this was written at a time when the law was not king. <laughs> it was written at a time when the king was law. And so Rutherford, he was sentenced to death for his writings under Charles II because the king was law. He died before his sentence could be carried out. He was in poor health, so he died before his sentence could be carried out. But he was sentenced to death under the king, who was the law. But then, 100 years later, the founders of our country, they took up this same question, the same question that Rutherford have of, had of how to have accountable leaders. How do you have accountable leaders? Their solution was to create a system of government, as you know, with checks and balances. We learned about this in high school. This is the system that holds the three branches of government accountable to one another. It holds elected, leader, elected leaders accountable to their constituents, and it also includes the freedom of the press. Freedom of the press helps keep everybody from corruption by accountability to the public. 
This system, it drew from many sources. The founders knew that they were drawing from many sources, but it was developed with full awareness that what they were doing rested on a biblical view of human nature. They knew this. In fact, James Madison in the Federalist Papers, Federalist Paper number 51, he explained the rationale behind checks and balances, and he said this. He said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, no controls on government, that is checks and balances, no controls on governments would be necessary. So what he's saying, in other words, is that if people weren't sinful, there'd be no need for government in the first place. And if leaders weren't sinful, then what would the problem be? There'd be no problem with entrusting leaders with unchecked power. But people are sinful. So government is necessary. Government is good. And the only sinless leader, as we know, is Jesus Christ himself. And so accountability in the form of checks and balances, it's necessary and it's good. And for us, as followers of Christ, we can look at it and we can say, well, it's not just necessary. It's not just good. It's actually a godly thing. It's a good, godly thing. So we have individual freedom. We have political freedom. The last one is national freedom. National freedom, this is freedom from foreign control. So a country with national freedom, it's not under the thumb of any other country. And again, in the U.S., we have high levels of national freedom. But unlike with individual freedom and political freedom, this is actually something that is fairly common throughout history. You go back through history and you see many, many instances of high levels of national freedom. And the reason is that the main ingredient required for national freedom is strength and the ability to assert that strength. If you have strength, you can assert that strength, you can have national freedom. So that's not unique to us, but what is unique to our time is the way that we react to violations of national freedom. That's a very unique thing. Think about earlier last year when Russian troops invaded Ukraine. Remember there's a period where it looked like Ukraine was just gonna be wiped off the map. All their national freedom was gonna be completely gone. And then as we followed the news, we watched, we read about it, a, a very rare thing happened. We all agreed. We all actually agreed on something. What we agreed on is that what was taking place was wrong. We came together, we agreed on that. Now in the subsequent months, there's been all kinds of debate about what should we do about that, what actions we should or we shouldn't take, and that's actually a very healthy thing. Foreign policy is not a simple idea. It's not as simple as many people would like us to believe. And so it really benefits from a robust public debate. But notice what we're not debating. What we're not debating is if what Vladimir Putin did was wrong. That's not really up for debate. In fact, the foreign policy debate in America for the past 100 years hasn't been whether to do right in a global setting, global context. It's been how to do right in a global context. And that's not a normal thing. It seems normal to us, but it's not a normal thing. The norm throughout history is for nations to dominate other nations. They dominate other nations assuming that a few conditions are in place. One, assuming that they're able to, and then two, assuming that it's in their best interest to do so. This is the might is right approach. The might is right approach, it only exercises restraint for pragmatic reasons. It never exercises restraint for moral reasons. So why do we think differently? Why don't, why don't we all have this might is right mindset? Why do we think differently? Well, just as we can't attribute our views on political freedom to any kind of intellectual superiority, 
so also we can't attribute our views on national freedom to any kind of moral superiority. Again, this is something that we inherit from our biblical worldview. When Jesus came to earth, his disciples, they would have been completely content for Jesus to just be the savior of their nation and no one else. That was it. But Jesus, he insisted and he kept insisting that he wasn't just the savior of one nation. He insisted that he was the savior of all nations. In fact, in his very final words to his disciples, he said, he said this, he said, therefore go make disciples of all nations. These were his final instructions. And the disciples, some of whom they started off, when they started off following Jesus, they were about as ethnocentric as it gets. But these men would subsequently give their lives, taking the good news of Jesus to all nations. Their experience with Jesus, it completely changed their view of other people and other nations. Now, patriotism, patriotism is a great thing. Love of country is a great thing. Here's a, here's a picture of, of my family from this, not this past fourth, several fourths ago. Uh, we don't really look like this anymore. <laughs> um, man, love of country is a great thing. And, and, um, and, and expressing that is an important thing. In fact, today, we should all go outside today. <laughs> we should look up at the sky with our sunglasses on, and we should watch the planes flying over, and we should thank God. We should thank God for the country that we get to live in. And that's, that's, an, that's an incredibly good thing. But love for one's own country, it can come relatively easy, especially when you live in a place like this. It can come very easy. The teaching of Jesus, it was radical, not because it taught us to love our own country. The teaching of Jesus was radical because it called for a new thing. It called for loving people, for valuing people from outside of one's own country. That was a radical idea. It changed the lives of his disciples. This means that if you think that people from other nations are as valuable as people from your own nation, then you are a part of the thought legacy of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? So, we see that Jesus, he shaped our views on freedom, on individual, political, on national freedom, and he did this despite politics not being his number one priority. This actually provides a very hopeful model for us as we consider how to follow in his footsteps, as we consider how to carry that banner forward. Like Jesus, we have our greatest impact on politics when it's not our number one priority. How does that make sense? Focus on it less, make a bigger impact. It's actually the same with other walks of life. This is the same thing. If I want to have an impact on the lives of my kids, maximize that impact, do I do it just by making them my number one priority? My whole life revolves around them. They're my focus. Nothing else matters. No. If I want to make an impact on the lives of my kids, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to prioritize my marriage, and I'm going to prioritize my walk with God. Why? Well, because those things, those are the foundation that my kids need in order for me to maximize that impact. So by focusing on these things, I'm really, really benefiting my kids at the same time. And so it's the same way. If we want to have an impact on politics, we want to have an impact on godly laws, it really helps if we can know where those godly laws come from. What is their source? What is their foundation? And as we've seen, godly laws, they rest on godly societies. 
Godly laws don't come out of thin air. Godly laws are built on godly societies. And this is especially true in a form of government like ours, where lawmakers are elected directly by the societies, by the people. Godly societies, these rest on two pillars. The first pillar is godly churches. Godly churches are God's instrument for influencing societies. The other pillar is godly families. This is God's instrument for carrying that influence into the future, into future generations. Godly churches, godly families, these are made up of godly individuals. These are people who have been saved by Jesus Christ, and they're committed to learning his ways and putting them into practice. So this means if you want to contribute to politics and godly laws, start with yourself. Learn what Jesus taught and put it into practice. And then, as you do that, lean into the church. Don't just be someone who watches from the sidelines. Get in the game and move the mission forward. Then, as you do that, invest in your family. Strengthen your marriage. Teach your children what the Bible says about following Jesus. Teach your children what you're learning. If you don't have children, support those who do. And then, as you interact with society, be a light. As you work, as you, as you work with the job God has given you, other assignments that he's given you, work hard. Set a great example. And as you do that, share with others. Share with others about the hope that you have in Jesus. And then the last thing is participate in making godly laws. Now, if you have a job that is in politics, then these top two, society and laws, they're the same for you. They blend together. But if you're like most of us who work outside of politics, then nevertheless, we need to continue to be involved and we can exercise our political freedom that we have. We can be involved in godly laws by exercising the political freedom we have and start by voting for godly laws and for godly leaders and go from there. By starting at the bottom, what we're doing is we're following Jesus' example and we're joining the men and the women throughout the centuries and across the world who have contributed to this legacy of freedom. A couple next steps, and we'll wrap up on these. Um, one next step is to take a break from news and politics. Consider taking a break. You know who you are. Consider taking a break from news and politics. Uh, why would you do this? You would do this if it will help you focus on one of those lower elements, one of those more foundational elements. So if you're at work and you find yourself when you should be contributing to society by you're on the clock, you should be doing, advancing your employer's mission forward, and you're just browsing the news, that might be a time to take a break from politics, focus on your contribution to society, godly society. Or one thing that I've put into practice and have had to continue to have in place in my life is that I don't read the newspaper before I read the Bible in the morning. Um, my reading of the news was really invading my time with God and impacting my individual relationship with God and my individual godliness. I had to put that on the back burner, prioritize reading the Bible. So those might be some ways that you need to take a break from news and politics. The other next step would be to learn more about news and politics. So the opposite. Uh, as Christians, we're commanded to pray for our leaders. And if you don't know who your leaders are, or if you don't know how to pray for them, that might be a good indicator that actually you need to lean into politics and news a little bit more. You need to at least, at least learn enough so that you can intelligently pray for your leaders and obey the Bible in that way. And on that note, let's pray. 
God, we do. We pray for our leaders right now. Um, God, we pray for our president, for our governor, for our city council, God. And we pray that you would give them wisdom. And we pray that you would allow them to contribute to godly laws, God. God, we thank you for the system that you've placed us in. And we thank you that um, it's not all up to them, that we actually have a role to play. I pray that you would help us to play our part well and play our part faithfully. And God, we are thankful to you for Jesus, for setting the foundation for the freedoms that we get to enjoy in this country and today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.